Welcome to episode 10 of the F1 show for the 2007 French Grand Prix. I'm Robin Warner, and I'm way hopped up on sugar right now. And I'm Jim Lau, and I'm also hopped up on sugar and caffeine. Why don't you give us the uh, race report for the French Grand Prix? Well, Kimi Raikkonen wins the French Grand Prix, his second win of the season and his first since the season opener in Australia. Felipe Massa brings more Ferrari red to the podium, finishing second and allowing the Scuderia to dominate Magni Cour. Hamilton finished third for McLaren and extends his lead in the Drivers' Championship in the process. Kubica comes back strong from his massive accident in Canada and brings his BMW Sauber home fourth, ahead of his German teammate Nick Heidfeld. Giancarlo Fisichella brings the candy-corn-colored Renault home in a respectable sixth, while McLaren driver and double world champion Fernando Alonso struggled to finish seventh after troubles in qualifying. And Honda, finally... Finally, scores a point courtesy of Jensen Button, finishing eighth in the world car. Now, Jim, we're both hyped up on caffeine and sugar, and it was actually a pretty exciting race, not because of just racing action per se, but just a whole different collection of things, kind of random incidents going on. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the most random incidents was uh, Christian Albers, who actually drove away from his pit uh, with the fuel rig still attached. And that's the first time we've seen that happen, where he actually drove straight out of his pit box and out onto the track um, and actually knocked over a couple of guys in the process. And I, I checked into it on the website afterwards, and no one was seriously hurt. And uh, there haven't, hasn't been any word of a penalty handed down yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if, because uh, obviously the FIA is going to frown at anything like that where it's really a safety kind of incident. Yeah, there's got to be a fine and a minimum. And you know it's a bizarre incident when Spiker is actually the leading news in one of our podcasts. I mean, it was one of the most bizarre circumstances I've ever seen. What happened was the lollipop uh, man for Albers flipped the lollipop from brakes on to first gear. And for some reason, Albers just was on autopilot, and that clicked in his head. He saw motion in the lollipop and just assumed he needed to go, and he just took off. But they were not finished fueling the car at all, and it was completely his fault. The Everyone, the mechanics, were all doing their jobs properly. Yeah, he just says, uh, you know, he just made a mistake in the pits. He thought the lollipop was going up. It wasn't. Um, so I guess, you know, good reaction from everyone to try to get their hands off of it and get out of the way. I mean, a couple of guys were knocked over, but like we say, no one was really hurt, so... uh it worked out okay, but yeah, there's probably going to be some kind of a penalty or something at least handed down for that. Okay, but enough about the Spiker Ferraris. Let's go to the Ferrari factory team. And Kimi Raikkonen, he's back, at least for this race. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously he had been a pretty poor performance the last couple of races, and there were really some questions starting to be raised as to was he really committed to it? You know, does he have the drive that Massa has? And, well, he never really seemed that enthusiastic or really like he was pushing that hard. I mean, he's, he had, you know, definitely great lap times and, and, and performed well on track. Um, but even, even, I mean, obviously he went on to win the race. Uh, you know, he passed uh, Massa in the second round of pit stops, um, which I sort of predicted from the beginning. It was gonna You be- did. It was pretty impressive. And he was quite a bit quicker um, in the last stages of his second stint before that second pit stop compared to Massa, and he went three laps longer. Yeah, Felipe Massa blames it on traffic. He said... Uh, oh, which I thought was honestly rather childish. Yeah, I mean, everyone else, Kimi had to go through the same traffic Felipe did. I mean, certainly there's sometimes, you you know, a guy gets out, of, get out, gets out of the way more quickly than another guy, but everyone is dealing with essentially the same traffic and how you deal with that and, and the, the luck you have sort of is part of, it, part of the whole deal. But, um, I mean, they were on the same tire strategy. They both uh, saved their soft tires for the last stint. I mean, that's pretty standard. Almost everyone did that. 
um, both Ferraris on two-stop strategies, so, I mean, really, uh, really close. Uh, Raikkonen was able to, to run a couple extra laps. I think it was two or three extra laps. Three laps, yeah. Um, beyond Felipe Massa, so his fuel time would be that much shorter, uh, just a little bit less fuel that had to go into the car. And when he came out of his second pit stop, he was well ahead on track of Felipe Massa and uh, was able to just keep that uh, keep that lead up. And, and Massa was gaining on him in the last the, the closing stages, but it wasn't close enough to make a move. No, not close at all. And what was what's interesting to me is this has kind of been consistent just about all year, is that Raikkonen is slower than Massa, but he's also carrying more fuel. And it's, it's kind of surprising to me that they've kept going with that strategy. I mean, obviously, up until now, it hasn't really worked out for Raikkonen. So here is an example where it actually worked the way it was supposed to, as far as I can see it, is that Raikkonen has more fuel. Maybe he can't get quite the same qualifying time that Massa can, but he can carry the race longer. He's got a little bit more flexibility if cautions or whatever are to happen, or if he gets caught up in traffic. He has more flexibility to make the race go his way, and this is the first time we've seen it come that way, and he gets another win, his second of the season, which gives him 10 Desperately needed points. He's still 22 points back in the championship. And certainly a psychological boost. I mean, you know, when there's all these questions flying around in the media and just, you know, in podcasts and so on, talking about, you know, what's what's he doing and he was this amazing driver and is this the right fit for him to have him just come out and get a victory um, is, is definitely good. And, and interestingly, Felipe Massa was really pretty bummed out about getting second place. I mean, it's a Ferrari 1-2, and of course anyone's going to want to be the one in a 1-2, but... He just really seemed just out of it and really not excited at all. And all this is so too bad for it. And, you know, it's good for the team, but too bad for me. It's like, dude, you're second place. I mean, that's certainly not bad at all. And, uh, and Raikkonen hardly seemed excited to win. So it's like, it's almost he like would, they just needed that. That's like the only result that would be okay was a one, two. And they got he, that. He seemed maybe slightly relieved, but yeah. indifferent otherwise. I mean, I was kind of shocked at the post race interview. It was kind of like, yeah, the car's better and it made it work for us this weekend and I'm really happy, but okay. And you go, dude, you just want to race. You've been kind of in a slump. The media's been getting on you and here you're kind of proving them wrong. And he's like, yeah, whatever. And they won in pretty dominant fashion over the McLarens as well. Uh, we should definitely mention back up a second here that, uh, in qualifying in the beginning of, P- of, of Q3, the third qualifying session where there's just the top 10 drivers, um, Fernando Alonso had a, a transmission of bearing fail in his transmission. Um, which ended up just you know totally seizing up his car, had to go in for service, and he just could not set a time in the third qualifying session. So he had to start 10th on the grid. Um, he actually started on the soft tires, was the only driver to do so, and uh, to try to make up as many positions as he could as early on as he could. And that really didn't work out very well for him. He made it up to about 8th spot and was really had to battle, but he had a heck of a time getting around Nick Heidfeld. And really good job for Nick. I mean, they were battling lap after lap, and you know Alonso was trying different things, and, and Heidfeld pushing him wide and working with him. So good, good for Heidfeld to be able to you know keep the double world champion behind him. Yeah, Alonso finished seventh in that race, so he only made up a few spots. But it was it was tough to see him because certainly he was desperate to move forward, and he was aggressive, and it was very actually exciting to see him race. He was making passes on the outside. He was making passes where people weren't expecting passes. But at the same time, he also ran wide a couple of times. He was uh, he he went off track once. I mean, he wasn't driving a super tight race. He was it was more of a race of desperation. I think he just kind of felt the championship slipping away from him, and it kind of put him in desperation mode here. It's like damage control, just trying to do what he could with the you know starting tenth. There's only so much he can do. You know, even starting eleventh would have been better because he could set the fuel load. You know, once he knows, okay, this is where I'm starting. I'm going to set the fuel load to be whatever. But uh, 10th, he was already on race fuel being in the third qualifying session and sort of just do with it what you can, I guess. 
But uh, yeah, so I mean, that, it was interesting to see him work his way up to the field. But certainly, I mean, I would, I thought he would have done better. Uh, maybe maybe like a fifth or sixth or something like that. You know, probably not a podium would have been would have been tricky. But um, you know, I guess he, he, you know, to get three spots, I would have thought he could have done a bit better. But you know, it's not a bad result. Well, two years ago, we'd see uh, Kimi Raikkonen blow an engine in qualifying or practice, start dead last or 18th or something, and just storm through the field and get a podium or get some solid yeah, points. Yeah, like a fourth or fifth. Now, certainly, the cars are much tighter this year in 2007 because than they were in, in Yeah, the performance-wise from the best to worst cars, certainly tighter than before. But, I mean, yeah, he didn't have that storm through performance but also the thing that kind of threw me off, I was kind of surprised by that. I mean, in qualifying, in the footage, there was a very definite, very real big puff of smoke that came out of the back of Alonzo's lump. And I was kind of surprised for them to say it was just a transmission, just a bearing. I don't know what would cause that puff of I mean, that, that wasn't transmission fluid that was puffing out the back of the car. Yeah, we do see uh, bits of tire smoke that sometimes come out at odd times and so on. I mean, there are definitely times you see a car dive into a corner, a bunch of smoke come out, and you go, oh, no, and then you see, oh, no, it's just tire smoke. So it's it's hard to say. I mean, the replay was a little bit kind of, you know, sort of the car came into the picture at a weird time. So that's hard to say. I mean, it's certainly an, uh, an engine scare. You know, we haven't had a Mercedes blow up in a while here, so uh, that would be uh, a bit tricky. But um, but even, you know, his teammate, Fernando Alonso, you know, my boy, Fern- uh, my boy, Lewis Hamilton, I'm sorry, um, <laughs> Alonso's teammate, um, started second, and Kimi just walked away from him at the very start. Um, that was, that was remarkable. Yeah, I mean, Because McLaren's have strong starts. They've had them all year. And Lewis Hamilton specifically has made some really good moves. I was really hoping Lewis would, you know, get around Massa in the very beginning and, and, and hold him off and have a nice, a nice With your Hamilton there. shirt on, you, hoping this, hoping you, that. You know. But we are uh, an objective third-party news organization. Although my actual race prediction was that uh, Kimi Reagan would pass Massa in the pits and, and win it. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad to say that, uh, that that came true. So I was just hoping, you know, we'd have some good battling at the front with Lewis Hamilton. And, um, you know, Kimi Raikkonen just had a brilliant start, got right around Hamilton in the, and, you know, very just going into turn one. It wasn't even in the corner. It was before the corner. And uh, and so Hamilton did. I mean, he he held on to the position, but I mean, he ended up 32 seconds behind Kimi Raikkonen. You know, by near the end of the race, he knew he didn't have anything for uh, for Massa, and just sort of held back. You know, in traffic. So although he had a, he had a good lead over uh, fourth place Robert Kubica as well. So well, that's interesting. Here, Lewis Hamilton, he's he's kind of in this bizarre place. Okay, well, this does break one of his records. This is the first time where he's actually finished. A race below his starting position of a race. He had the Q, uh, P2 starting position. He finished third. So, uh, we're all sad for Hamilton, but, <laughs> but he continues to have a 100% podium finish record for his Formula One race history. I mean, that's which is over eight races now, which, which is, is half oh, the season almost. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. He has been an absolute rock. Mentally, physically, and he's had a good attitude. I mean, the McLaren driver of Lewis Hamilton had the biggest smiles on the podium in the interview afterwards. He was, he was happy and he was being there. And you know what? He has a good reason to be. He's now 14 points ahead of Alonso in the world championship. He is comfortably leading the world championship. Yeah, right with now. Alonso's trouble in qualifying, it, uh, you know, even, even only getting third place, uh, for Hamilton, he still, you know, gained position. He, you know, pulled out another two points over, uh, Fernando in the championship, so that's uh, you know obviously uh, good for him, and and he's trying to 
get away from any talk of could he be the rookie world champion? You know, because no one in F1 history has won the world championship in their first season trying to oh, do. Oh man! So. Oh my God! Could it be this year? I know. So, <laughs> so he's, he's sorry. Trying, there's a caffeine and sugar. He's trying. He's trying to get off. And say no, no, no. You know, it's a long way off. You know, it's a long season. But with every race, the season's getting shorter, and his lead is getting bigger. So it's. You know, we hate to jinx the guy, but, you know, I just hope he continues to do well. Well, Leave he's the that. second youngest driver on the grid. The Nico Rosberg. Nico Rosberg is the youngest. And he is more mature than just about everyone, including David Coulthard, by the way. <laughs> Which we need to mention, David. Um, David. A, a pretty well covered. I don't know if, uh, if you guys keep up on the rest of the F1 media so much or if we're your primary source of information, which, which would be fantastic. But uh, David Coulthard in an interview said he's driving just as well as Lewis Hamilton this year. It's just that the only difference is the car. And, yes. uh, and we hear these things from time to time from drivers. And, oh, if only I were in this car or only if this guy were in that guy's car. Um, you know, especially about, you know, if, if Anthony Davidson were in a better car, if Takuma Sato, some of these drivers that every once in a while have these amazing performances. It's fun but, to play the what ifs. But David Coulthard got an amazing amount of flack for saying he's driving as well as Lewis Hamilton. Um, because, you know, both British well, and drivers. Well, rightfully so. Yeah, they're both British drivers, and you know the only, I guess, still the most direct comparison when you can take the car out of the picture is compare Coulthard to his teammate Mark Webber, and, uh, and you know, and and they're fairly even. I mean, they, you know, they'll have one one guy will have a better uh, qualifying than another, and and so on. But then but there's, and, there's and, so many variables. And to Coulthard's credit, Webber's quite good. Yeah, I mean, he's he's been a solid driver his entire Formula One Weber, career. Webber is no slouch, but to say that he's, I mean. Lewis Hamilton has been just a sensation. Some of the passes he's made, obviously just his whole story and just coming out of the scene like he was. And Coulthard did well in his first season in, in F1 with Williams, but was he ever 14 points ahead in the, in the, you know, in the championship? Did he have podiums for his first eight races? I mean, yeah, he's certainly he's good and, um, you know, he's doing all right. But, you know, to say that, to, to put himself on the level and just say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just as good as Lewis Hamilton. Um, Come on, come on, David. Let's, well, uh, and there's let's another, com- another comparison test we comparison we can make here. Um, Coulthard raced for McLaren for several years, mm-hmm. and he was a race winner for McLaren. However, he was always kind of in Mika Hakkinen's shadow. He was not the dominant. He was not the lead McLaren driver ever. Yeah, and he never raced to be the lead uh, McLaren driver. Now there was definitely talk in the late '90s and right around the millennium. They're saying David Coulthard is due a championship. But we're talking about a 22-year-old who's just beyond what anybody expected. It's just coming and up people with expected a lot. New whole categories of records are being made for Lewis Hamilton. It's not even like, oh, he's breaking that record. It's just kind of like, you know, the, the podium thing. When he, once he had three podiums, that was on, that was on par with as much as, you know, the, the best performance ever. And now he's up to eight. Yeah. What? Yeah, I know. So, so the whole thing was nonsense. I give Coulthard credit, though. I have to say this. I think this is an important distinction to make. I don't think it's fair to get on Coulthard's case because he said it, just because here's a guy that's saying, I still believe in myself, and I do work really hard, and it's true that he could be doing some amazing things in that Red Bull car that would go relatively unnoticed due to the fact that it's not at the front of the grid, it's in the middle of the grid. Yeah. There's some truth to that. Here's also a guy who's 
trying to talk talk himself up for his job next year though too. Absolutely. So you got to keep that in mind. You know, when obviously anything anything these drivers say to the media, it's not just I want to talk to the media, but I want to make an impression on all those other teams that may be looking for drivers or you know as things get shuffled around because you know the silly season could you know is going to start in the next. Uh, you know, next handful of races here, and we're going to start to see who's going to be where in next season. And there's a couple of drivers with some contracts. Next, at the end of 08 is a much bigger year. A lot more drivers' contracts are expiring, and there's going to be probably a lot more shuffling around for the beginning of the 09 season. But we'll have to obviously see how the rest of 07 pans out. So, I mean, Coulthard making these comments is, I think, partly, you know, hey, you know, other teams. Oh, absolutely. It, it's on. more than partly. It's, it's a big part of it. But I guess my point is this. There could be some truth to what Coulthard is saying, and I give him credit for having the confidence to say it. However... If Mark Webber were a proven world champion and Coulthard was consistently outpacing Webber, he would have much sturdier, much firmer ground to stand on for these types of arguments. And yeah. it's just not the case. He should be beating Webber because he's got another 10 years on Webber in terms of Formula One experience. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point about Fernando, uh, about, uh, you know, Fernando Alonso is not even just a current world champion, but last two years, double world champion. And he was the one that was going to be the next Schumacher and all this and all. I mean, he had the new era of Formula One. Absolutely. Yeah. As the old guys get out of it and, you know, Jacques Villeneuve out and, and Michael Schumacher out, it's like, oh, this is a new generation. And here we are. And it's Lewis Hamilton, you know, they skipped a generation. And, and Alonso is, is almost <laughs> not forgotten yet. Or, you know, he's not even out of the championship yet at all. But, uh, you know, obviously Lewis Hamilton is, is really the sensation here. Yeah. So, Coulthard. Props to you. You got the cojones in front of the camera, in front of the media. Now just get those cojones behind this wheel, and you'll be rocking out. I think that's the I think that's the end of it right there. That's the bottom line, yeah. So lap one. Poor Truly. Well, I don't know about poor Truly. Yeah, we poor poor Kovalainen. I can't quite see what happened to Yarno Truly, but he got into Heike Kovalainen pretty hard. It spun him right around. Um, ended Yarno's race, and uh, Kovalainen could continue. Um, you know, he had to come in for an extra pit stop, and uh, you know, an unscheduled pit stop for some repairs. I, I don't know if he needed a new a new wing or quite what. Ended up 15th. So, I mean, after that, he was so far down the grid. Um, it just yeah, he was he was battling Alexander Wirtz and Scott Speed, respectable drivers nonetheless, but I mean, not where the Renault belongs. Yeah, so you know, you know, to have Yarno truly's day end in turn one, lap one. Obviously, that's a disappointment for the Toyota team. Um, a quick mention, his uh, teammate, Ralph Schumacher, ended in 10th, so another eh, kind of hey, oh yeah, hey, mid-level oh performance. Um, first, uh, the first of the lapped cars there, so nothing too exciting there. Yay. Um, <laughs> yeah, for real. Um, and then Anthony Davidson had uh, a bit of a crazy exchange with uh, Vidantonio Luzzi, um, where just uh, you know got sideways, just slid a little bit because it was you know this this new track surface at, at Manicourt and the uh, and cold tires and just slid into him and uh, and. Uh, Luzzi, to his credit, held this, this pretty wild-looking slide for a little while and, and corrected and came back and forth and ended up um, sort of just broadsiding uh, Davidson. So the two, the two just got into each other. Uh, they were both out of the race in lap one, so it was pretty unfortunate for the two of them. Um, yeah, and then so later on, Christian Albers had that retirement due to the uh, 50-foot fuel hose attached to his car that we mentioned earlier. And also late in the race, Scott Speed had to retire. At first, it looked like he'd spun off or something like that because he was buried in the gravel. But it turns out his the uh, engine just shut off on him, and he was out of the race, which is too bad. He was having a reasonably good race. Yeah, he was having a good scrap. There was a three-way uh, fight between Heike Kovalainen, Alexander Wirtz, and Scott Speed, and they yeah. were all really dicing at each other and, and changing positions and, uh, you know, just pushing really hard. And, and, you know, we don't know if Scott Speed maybe wasn't minding something on his on his car that should have been adjusted or quite what the problem was. 
But um, yeah, he ended up, you know, had to pull out, retire on, uh, you know, after 55 laps. So that's unfortunate for him. But otherwise, I mean, a, a clean race, like we said, no safety car periods, uh, no, you know, the, the most major occurrence was the uh, the crazy spiker uh, fuel hose uh, debacle. But other than that, that was uh, pretty much the deal. And we and we found out Lewis Hamilton isn't perfect after all. <laughs> yeah, just awfully close. But now let's take a look at these BMW Sobers. Uh, Kubica came back. He had that massive, massive accident in Canada. Completely, he had, for those who, who don't know, he hit the wall at 170 miles an hour, sustained extremely heavy Gs, and... Extremely heavy to most people would maybe be 10 or 15. This is 75 Gs 75 impact. G impact. So 75 times the weight of his body. Impact. In okay. Wall, yeah. He came off with a sprained ankle... And a couple of bruises. He wanted to race the next week at Indy. And uh, I think we mentioned this a little bit in the Indy podcast. And um, he was there at Indianapolis for Thursday and then decided to just pack up and go home once the doctor said, you know, he was actually okay to race. But if there were another problem at Indy, that, you know, you know the damage from that might be too much. So, um, but they cleared him for, to, to run this weekend. And um, all of his Polish fans were thrilled and they were out in force again this weekend. So, uh, you know, good for Kubica to get back in the car and, and, and do well with it. But, yeah, the BMWs were definitely on the pace and definitely very racy. Uh, well, I'd say more racy than on the pace. I mean, the, the, the Nick Heidfeld had the seventh fastest lap and Kubica had the tenth fastest lap. So it's not like they were really up there in terms of just raw lap times, although the qualifying position was quite good. So good with strategy, good with um, avoiding passing. Um, like we mentioned uh, with Nick Heidfeld being, you know, where Alonso could not get around him for a very long time. Kubica was pretty much out on his own for a long time there. I mean, we didn't see much action from him, but he was solidly, he had a, you know, a ways behind Lewis Hamilton. He never really brought it to Hamilton, but, uh, you know, the, the battle going on behind him stayed well behind him. So Kubica had a pretty, pretty uneventful race, which is, I'm sure he was pleased to get out of the car um, and not onto a stretcher, but to be able to finish the race properly and, uh, and, and you know, and obviously a fourth place, you know, bring home a handful of points for, uh, for the BMW guys. Yeah, but Kubica had a strong fourth place result earlier in the season. It's because other drivers had trouble. Yeah. This time he was fourth due to merit. He he was fourth on his own. Yeah, he qualified there. And, and he qualified he was, fourth. Yeah. And another thing that I think is interesting to point out is early in the season, we'd have the Ferraris and the McLarens racing for pole. And then it'd be a good five to seven tenths back, the BMW Saubers would be qualifying, and they would usually be fifth, sixth, somewhere in there. And then the Renaults and, and then, the rest. Yeah, so yeah. on and so forth. Well, this time, Kubitz's, uh qualifying time, Q3 qualifying time of a 15.493 was actually only four-tenths off the pole time. So it seems like BMW is clawing forward just a little bit. You're not seeing it in the finishing results quite as much yet, but the, the speed difference does seem to be decreasing, and I think that's awfully impressive considering the absolute powerhouses that McLaren and Ferrari are. Yeah, certainly BMW is catching up in a big way. And Renault have said that their goal this, this, for this season is to at least be able, uh, basically, the, to be third in the Constructors' Championship because they don't want to be the team that was world champions two years in a row and then just fall off the face of the podium there. But it won't happen. They're, they're not going to get third. But BMW has 48 points in the Constructors' Championship, which is well behind Ferrari's 89. But 20 points ahead of Renault, you know, the, um, you know, Renault's only got 28 points in the championship. So... BMW is pretty solidly in a third spot in the championship, and I'd be pretty surprised if that changed. I mean, you know, and behind Renault is Williams Toyota with only 13 points. So really a pretty big spread, and, and McLaren is just way out front and with 114 points. So, I mean, BMW obviously has, has 
you know, outpaced Renault very consistently, which is great for them, you know, uh, ahead of the uh, double constructor champions. And uh, but they, you know, they're, they're not going to bring much to, to Ferrari or McLaren, and, and I don't think anyone expects them to. But certainly, very solid third place as a constructor for BMW. Yeah, absolutely. Now, another thing that just kind of came to me this race, and I mentioned it to Jim, and I he agreed. This is the first season where they've had this uh, dual compound tire that each team has to use both compounds. There's a primary compound and a softer compound throughout the race, and. And during the race, each each driver has to use both compounds for at least one stint of the race. At least one lap, technically. Now, in theory, you have the primary tire, and then you have the soft tire. And the soft tire is supposed to be worth, I don't know, give or take a few tenths a lap. Yeah, it's quicker. within a second. It's, it's not a dramatic difference. It's, it's definitely within a second. And I have to say that so far, and this goes out to Bernie Ecclestone and the F, and F1 as much as anybody else, that it's been pretty much a failure. I mean, okay, yeah, some cars have white stripes on them when they drive around and some don't, but otherwise it doesn't seem like the softer compound has improved the racing at all. It maybe adds one small bit of um, strategy to the whole thing, but I think personally that if they want to do this, I think the difference in performance should be greater. Yeah, like we mentioned, Fernando Alonso um, and, and actually was one of the only drivers to, to start on a soft tire um, the others were the two spikers and Takuma Sato. But it didn't uh, matter. But the idea being, okay, he's going to be on the soft tires when everyone else is on the hard tires. He's going to just rock his way through the field. And then the question is, once everyone else goes to softs on their third stint, is he going to be able to hold on to it now that he's on the harder tires? But that really did not seem to be a factor at all. Uh, he, you know, he was on, the, the, the tires just don't make enough of a difference for it to really yeah, it's, add anything to the racing. It's still all aerodynamic. And French, the French Grand Prix especially, is a very twisty, high-speed place. So that's where the arrow is extremely important, and there's less opportunities to pass. But in my opinion, personally, if there were, say, a one-and-a-half or even two-second-a-lap difference, which is really quite big. Yeah, a, nice, a really noticeable, dramatic difference. That would add a huge, a huge difference because... Then you would have very real cornering speed differences. A spiker on the soft compound tires could maybe even be competitive with, I don't know, a Renault on the hard compound tires. That would really mix it up or scrap the whole bloody thing. Yeah. I don't care about wipe strikes. I mean, some interesting... Except the band is tight. Yeah, that's a good band. Uh, you know, some interesting, you know, wild passes on the outside of corners where the inside guy's on hard tires so he just can't hold on exactly. to the outside. I exactly. Mean, exactly. To really make it interesting, but... Now you're speaking my language. Hey, man, I've been speaking your language all episode. Hell yeah. But, uh, you know, it's just really, you know, we're looking forward to it and saying, oh, this will be interesting. And, you know, instead of this whole Michelin Bridgestone thing, it'll be, all be Bridgestones, but then it'll have options. And, I mean, it's... You know, if we didn't have the white stripe to tell us which tire is which or, you know, the details we, after we the race. We wouldn't know, exactly. It's kind of, you know, oh, man, that, that we really don't know. I mean, there's not any dramatic difference in, in performance, and it's, it's sort of too bad. Yeah, I think the problem is Formula One said, oh, we're not going to put dots that are the size of the quarter on the size of the tire to show the difference. We're going to put a white stripe around. And they say, okay, now you can tell the difference. We're done. But they're not done. It's, it's, the whole point was to improve the racing, and I don't think it's done that. I think it's kind of silly to have it unless it actually improves the racing. And I think, like I said, either make the difference bigger or scrap the whole bloody thing. I agree. Well, that is about it for this race. However, we are not done with the show because 
For Finally, the first time. Yeah, after all of our uh, asking for it, we have gotten a couple of bits of feedback. So I want to say... Hooray! Feedback! Thank you to, uh, to Michael from Australia and uh, especially to Jim from New Zealand who had a couple of interesting observations. Good night, uh, mate! And questions. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, you're um, welcome. He puts forth the idea, you know, that... Uh, F1 is set up as a constructors' championship to push the bounds of vehicle engineering as far out as possible. I completely, you know, uh, agree with that, and that it's weird that it's limited. And, and now there are street cars with some more advanced technology than Formula One cars. You know, where they can't have magnesium blocks in F1 yet. The new M3 has magnesium block, and that you know their ABS and traction control I think are different. You know, street car you want those things just for safety, where in a race car you don't want them to really show driver skill. But that there are some, you know, more sophisticated electronics, and not to mention all-wheel drive systems, continuously variable transmission, turbos, diesels. I mean, there's hybrid technology. There's so much going on in the streetcar arena that's not an F1. So, um, well, that, that's that's absolutely true, and he makes a very good point. However, I think you have to look at two things. First of all, I mean, Formula One had very advanced technology back in the early mid '90s. They had active ABS that could actually control. The brakes individually, they had active aerodynamics where the wings could actually flatten out on the straights and, and, and bend more. They had heavily, heavily computer-controlled cars back then. And what they decided was is this is nonsense. The driver is just less and less and less a part of the equation. And so this is why we've kind of trended to what we have today. So I think the technology needs to be there, but the technology cannot get in the way of the purest part of the sport, which is the connection between car and driver and what that driver can do to get the most out of the car. But that's describing a spec series, you know, whether it's GP2 or A1 or one of these. I mean, that's that's the most, if you want to see which is the best driver, then you go to a spec series where all the cars are basically equal with minor differences in setup, and the difference really comes down to the driving. But I think part of what really interests me about F1 is the technical side of it, and uh, one thing that I came up with, which I don't know if would be feasible or not, um, probably not, I'm sure, but um, is a way, you know, obviously lately in the industry, a big, a, a big push has been for better mileage and more green um, you know, emissions and all that, is to say for all the teams, you have a set amount of fuel for this race and you know, make it something, you know, obviously Go nuts. It, would be, it would be completely calculated as to what that would be. Um, exactly. You, you need to finish this, this race in X liters of fuel. And whether you find that a very small V12 is the way to do it, whether a four-cylinder with ridiculous turbocharging on a it. A turbo-diesel hybrid. Exactly, whether it's some kind of hybrid thing, whether it's an all-wheel drive thing, whether it's eight wheels. I mean, you know, some of the, the crazy innovation with the old six-wheel cars you'd see and these different, you know, crazy configurations and some of the old turbo days with these amazing just tiny engines making huge horsepower, um, which things that could potentially be used on the street I think would be really interesting. I mean, we're seeing this... You know, surgeons in diesel in Lamar right now, which I think has been really cool. That's very cool. And, uh, you know, to have technology that actually could, could filter down into streetcars again and, and have this, the, all this money and development that's going into Formula One maybe have an impact in the real world, I think would be brilliant. So whether it's, you know, that suggestion of just, hey, here's, you know, I think because the engine formula is so set right now and it's, it's specified. Absolutely. And, and they're going to do an engine freeze even for 08. I mean, I, I certainly agree with that, but I have a couple of points. First, first of which is most of the manufacturers still argue very heavily that a lot of technology and a lot of knowledge still comes from Formula One and makes it into their products and that they gain a lot of experience technically from the cars. Two, I think a lot of what you're saying makes sense, but if you diverge from a strict formula 
And I'm not saying a spec series, but the more you diverge from a strict formula, the harder and harder it is for them to govern the series safely. And I think as much as I would love to see as much diversity as you're talking about, I think it would be very hard logistically to do that in a safe way. And the final point that I want to make <laughs> is that the technology cannot impede. I think at the end of the day, it still has to be what the driver can do with the car. When the computer starts controlling the actual behavior of the car, I think that to me is where the line is. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not arguing for more electronics. I mean, I, I agree that I think it'll be more exciting without traction control and without ABS. We see some different moments and actually passes under braking and so on are more interesting. But as far as um, you know, power uh, powertrains and, and different things, the uh, you know having you know small engines, big engines, uh, different you know different number of cylinders, different configurations. I mean, maybe a straight eight is a brilliant way to do that. I mean, I, you know, I don't know, but I think practically what would happen would be that there were you know the different teams would would find um, this is the best solution. You know, it's a, it's a, a compact V8 or, you know, I, I don't think it would be a V8. You know, they, they really like the V10s and have all the research and money into developing V10s that I think several teams would go back to that, um, you know, or whether V12 just because of their natural balance tendencies or so on, that a bunch of teams, you know, once once Ferrari had figured out, okay, we think that a V10 is the way to go, then a lot of the others would probably sort of follow suit. And it wouldn't really be that wild of a difference. But what I think would be interesting are these outliers, you know, when Super Aguri comes out with this, you know, four-liter diesel. It's like a small jet or turbo something. Turbo diesel Honda. Yeah, or, you know, <laughs> oh, from the Honda Jet Project, we borrowed this. You know, just something um, really odd, yeah, where you really have a different cool. car, where, you know, you hear all the cars go by, and you can tell what they are from the different sounds of them and, and really say, oh, man, yeah, that's the, that's the four-cylinder going by, and that's the V12 going by. And, you know, they'd all have different torque characteristics and different passing going on in and out of corners and, you know, different uh, characteristics on different tracks, which I just think would be interesting. But, uh, but yeah, definitely there'd, there'd be more... Uh, so much more variance that it would be hard to compare driver to driver to different cars and different teams. And, and certainly it would be much better than going back to our argument we were having earlier about primary versus alternate tires. I mean, if you had some real fundamental differences in the car that really made the car stand out performance-wise, that would definitely be more interesting than whether a tire had a white stripe on it or not. And I think, um, Jim, this was an excellent debate. I really appreciate we really appreciate you uh, giving us the feedback and, and your comments, and I think they were very well thought out and interesting, and we appreciate it. Yeah, certainly. So uh, if anyone else wants to uh, send us any feedback, our, episode, our email address is feedback at f1show.com. And uh, as always, for any uh, more details on any of these episodes or to leave comments right on the webpage, just visit us online at f1show.com. And one, one more quick note before we go. Um, we have promised and will deliver video from the Indianapolis Grand Prix. Um, Jim's looking at me right now. Yes, it is my fault. <laughs> I do have to get that up and get that going. I will do that, I promise, and I am sorry for the delay. But it will be up soon, and I will let you know as soon as it is. And this is why I never promise anything on the air. But, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get that uh, that project done. Sorry. And you'll have uh, some, some cool sights and sounds to see and hear oh, from. Oh, you'll have some cool sights and sounds. Okay, well, there you it's have it. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It's been promised. So uh, until next Again. week, <laughs> covering the Silverstone Grand Prix in only a week's time, I'm Jim Lau. And I'm Robin Warner. Bye.